I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From both the left and the right, culture wars are dominating much of our current political debate. But is this fact a major mistake for both political parties. Our guest today says Democrats in particular are shooting themselves in the foot by ignoring working class voters, notably Hispanics, who are more culturally conservative than their college-educated supporters. We're going to hear from Rui Teixeira, who makes the case for an abundance agenda as opposed to a woke agenda. You know, I mean, one of the, the things I always say people who say, well, how can you say all this given, you know, Trump is so terrible, the Republicans are terrible, why are you criticize the Democrats? Well, part of it is, given the problems the Republicans have, why are you beating the hell out of these people? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Two-thirds of all American voters do not have a four-year college degree. But you'd never know it in a lot of political discourse, which seems to be aimed primarily at the most educated voters. In recent elections, Republicans have made major gains among working-class voters, especially among non-whites. They were a key reason why Donald Trump won in 2016 and the GOP regained the House last year. Democrats, on the other hand, have been doing better with college-educated voters. But their numbers may not be enough to give the party a big win in future elections. Our guest is political scientist and writer Rui Teixeira. He calls himself a social democrat and says that economic class should play a bigger role in American politics. And he says in 2024, Democrats should run on growing the economy, increasing jobs and living standards, and tone down the rhetoric about, for instance, what's wrong with the police, as well as talk of gender and systemic racism. Rui is among the best-known political thinkers. For years, he worked at top liberal think tanks like Brookings Institution that helped workshop the ideas that motivated the Clinton administration and the Obama administration. But now he's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works side by side with a lot of conservative thinkers. And he focuses on the transformation of party coalitions and the future of American electoral politics. And Rui Teixeira is co-author with John Judas of The Emerging Democratic Majority, a book that was published 20 years ago and was highly influential. It 
argued that Democrats would gain a lasting advantage in a multiracial post-industrial America. But so far, that hasn't happened. And in fact, their next book out this fall is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? That's a big part of our interview, and it picks up with this point. I've always tried to make the point that, yes, I mean, you can make you can have demographics changing in your favor and you can have groups growing that are by and large quite sympathetic to you. But if those groups start moving in the direction of your opponent, it will essentially cancel out uh, the gains that, that are attendant upon the simple fact the mix of voters is changing in your favor. So, you know, I, I felt like the Democrats were more or less on the right track. I thought the Obama administration had a lot of promise, even though I had some disagreements with it. I thought the campaign he ran in 2012 was pretty good and importantly, actually was a fairly populist campaign that managed to claw back a lot of the white working class voters they lost in 2010. So, you know, going into 2016, I'm still reasonably happy with the Democrats and it's worth sticking with the team. Um, After 2016, I really began to question that because I felt like, you know, Hillary Clinton was in fact, (laughs) turned out to be a really terrible candidate. And part of the reason she turned out to be a terrible candidate was because she had really kind of almost leaned into the elitist, you know, culturally very liberal tendencies the Democrats were starting to develop and seemed to actually have no interest in reaching the white working class. And she was running against Trump and she should have beaten him soundly. She did not. And then in the aftermath of that, we we saw the Democrats turn to uh, basically categorizing entire areas of the country and all the Trump voters uh, is basically, uh, in the immortal words of of Hillary Clinton, a basket of deplorables who are motivated by racism and xenophobia. That's why they all voted for Trump. There was no need to have a more complicated explanation. Just to be clear, Rui, you're a social Democrat. You're a man of the Mm -hmm. left. You wish liberals well, Mm -hmm. right? Correct. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Where do you think the country should be heading as opposed to where it is today? Basically, where we are today is we're at a sort of uh, contretemps between the two parties, where I think neither party is particularly capable of forming a dominant majority coalition and moving the country in a good direction. So, And I think neither party is really making an offer to the American people, particularly American working class, that's really all that attractive. So what sort of policy shift or pivot should the Democrats make? You know, there's sort of a a three-point plan they should embrace. One is to move to the center on cultural issues. Uh, The second thing is to promote an abundance agenda. And the third is to embrace patriotism and liberal nationalism. And what's wrong with their current direction? They're really pretty, I think, totally identified with and still doubling down on a species of cultural radicalism. They don't seem to be inclined to move away from that. I think their economic agenda, while it has some good points, is too heavily driven by a sort of uh, green transition theory of of how you're going to grow the American economy, which I think is in many ways incorrect, and it's not going to be well received by working class voters over the medium to long haul. And I think they're still reluctant to, you know, forthrightly and, and unapologetically embrace patriotism. So as a result, they're a party that increasingly is attractive to white college educated liberals, increasingly less attractive to working class voters, including importantly, not just white working class voters, but also non-white working class voters. 
You mentioned the term abundance agenda. What do you mean? Well, I mean that by and large, a party of the left should be sort of committed to uh, broadly shared prosperity, which in turn is dependent upon basically abundance. It's dependent on growth. It's dependent on productivity growth. It's dependent on, you know, enabling more people to have more things at more times. Uh, and the moment you lose sight of that and act like it's really not that important how abundant things are, and then the most important thing is to, you know, sort of save the planet and have a green transition and at the process working class people suffer, so be it. We have a higher moral calling that we have to attend to. And if that does not produce abundance, that's not our problem because, uh, you know, our, our primary goal is not, in fact, abundance. And if you're going to have abundance, it means you have to direct your investments such as they are into a broad range of places where they will do the most good, not necessarily privilege, uh, say, wind and solar, for example. And it also means you have to uh, pay attention to the fact that it's the way the American system is now set up with its regulatory and permitting structures is actually not that conducive to abundance. It's not that conducive to building things. It's not that conducive to the kind of dynamic economy that is, in fact, going to produce abundance. Roy, this is something that I cover a lot in my work, the kind of split in environmental movement between uh, sort of a mainstream environmentalism that wants to reduce emissions and have a clean environment uh, and a more radical faction that is really kind of suspicious of modernity and technology and capitalism in general, in general and they think we're growing too much, we need degrowth. And there's a there's a negativity in that message that obviously you're opposed to. But how did that wing of the environmental movement come to have so much influence inside the Democratic Party, which traditionally was oriented towards towards the working class? If we went back to the 1960s, when the environmental movement really takes off on the, on the heels of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, it really is fundamentally a reformist movement, even though at times it had some apocalyptic overtones. It was about cleaning up the air and water. It was remarkably successful. A lot of legislation was passed in the 60s and early 70s. Air and water really did get a lot better. But there was always a sort of apocalyptic strain under the surface that went back to William Bode and his road to survival. And you could even see in Silent Spring the idea that there was a fundamental opposition between man and nature, that industrial society was in some ways incompatible with the natural world. And that really takes off again in the 70s when, you know, they passed all this legislation, the environmental movement is looking around for more things to do, and it sort of meets the anti-nuclear moment. I think over the course of the 70s, we see the environmental movement become essentially coterminous with the anti-nuclear movement. And this really gets turbocharged in 79 when you have the Three Mile Island accident, and you also have uh, the release of the film The China Syndrome, and after that, it's kind of lights out for, for nuclear power in the United States over time because it just becomes so damn hard to, uh, to build any nukes. And then late in the 90s and early 2000s, there were more apocalyptic warnings about the impact of growing carbon emissions on global climate and what would happen if there weren't some very big changes. And over time, you just see the Democratic Party becoming ever more captured by, by this idea that this isn't just a question of something that needs to be reformed. It isn't just a question of something we need to make progress on. This is an existential crisis that threatens the planet, possibly the extinction of human life. Originally, that's sort of an outlier view. 
within the within the climate movement, but it, over time it becomes the hegemonic view. And then in 2016, when Trump gets elected, you know, this really sets things into overdrive because, my God, now we have a climate denialist in the White House. The Democratic Party becomes increasingly bought in to this view of, of the crisis nature of, of climate change. And that's a view you don't share. No, right? that is not a view I share. I mean, global warming is real, but I do believe it's a manageable problem. And I do believe it will not be solved by ramping up wind and solar and that a, a transition to uh, clean energy sources that are not fossil fuels will take a long time. And the idea that you can move rapidly to run an industrial civilization on wind and solar uh, and batteries is just ludicrous, right? You're singing my song here. We've done a lot of episodes on exactly this problem, and I'm a big skeptic of the all wind and solar model for um, decarbonizing the power grid. A big fan of nuclear power. But but looking at the politics of it, you know, if you look at uh, Biden's environmental policy, a lot of it depends on both kind of bribing, but ultimately kind of forcing people into buying electric cars. The demand is not out there <laughs> among the masses of honest workers and peasants, you know, like, I want an electric car. You know, I mean, it's the kind of thing that should... Uh, and the music tier is, I suppose, ultimately be solved by the market. If people want to buy an electric car, it should be because it's better and cheaper or both, hopefully. Um, and you shouldn't force people into it. And right now, the appetite for buying an electric car, even assuming that if a zillion people bought an electric cars, it wouldn't really make that much difference to emissions. I got my doubt about, doubts about that. But, you know, you, we're definitely headed into a, a era in which the Democrats do seem committed to doing a lot of stuff that would in some ways force people to be part of this transition, like buy an electric car, like buy their electricity from a grid that is in fact dependent on, because it's become increasingly dependent on renewables, uh, is actually like more expensive rather than less expensive. So the fundamental problem with the green transition is as it's conceived by a lot of these democratic politicians, is it's actually probably going to not be good for working class people in terms of the energy prices they pay, the reliability of the energy they have, uh, and their ability to buy an affordable car. We're speaking with Rui Teixeira on How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And a word about the summer. We're planning a summer break from new shows during the months of July and August. And we'll be back in September with a whole new range of topics. Find out more about what we're up to. We have a newsletter at howdoefixit.me. Thanks to the hard work of my partner, Richard. You can also <laughs> contact us and suggest new guests and topics for the show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now more from our interview. Rui Teixeira, who is a social democrat, has primarily or largely a class-based view of politics as opposed to viewing people as members of distinct racial and ethnic groups. I'm concerned about the welfare of working class people. You know, I want the greatest good for the greatest number. And the Democrats, as the way they're practicing things today, are not necessarily on that course. And I think we must be Catholic, small c, and open about where we get our solutions from. Some can come from the conservative side, some can come from the liberal side. But the idea at this point, the Democrats are completely on the right track and everybody on the right is completely on the wrong track, I think is, is just not tenable if it ever was. And Democrats need to get their act together and make a better economic and cultural offer to the American people if they ever hope to uh, you know, regain their status as a, as a dominant majority coalition. I mean, the Republicans have their own problems. Let's make that clear, right? <laughs> They're a long way yeah, from, yeah. from solving theirs either. But, you know, I mean, one of the, the things I always say people is saying, well, how can you say all this given, you know, Trump is so terrible, the Republicans are terrible. Why are you criticizing the Democrats? Well, part of it is given the problems the Republicans have, why are you beating the hell out of these people? Why, why are you, you know, really not that much more attractive, if at all, than the Republicans at this point, despite you know, all the things you might justifiably say are wrong with the Republican Party and how awful Trump is. So I, to me, that that's a fundamental question that Democrats should be confronting and don't. Let's look at working class voters. Mm-hmm. Um, when most politicians of the left and the right talk about American voters, they say middle class, middle class, middle class. Not many people talk about the working class, except for maybe Bernie Sanders. You are talking about working class voters, not just white working class voters. These are a huge number of people. Uh, Tell us more about them. Okay, well, uh, you know, this basically uh, reflects a common division between those who lack a four-year degree and those who have have one. Because the people who lack a four-year degree tend to have very different kinds of jobs than people who have a four-year degree or greater. They tend to have you know, lower incomes. They tend to have a different cultural outlook. Uh, their economic trajectory over time has been quite different. The non-college educated have been losing ground for 40 years, and the college educated have been doing much better. Um, you know. So uh, this is a convenient way of dividing people into the working class and the college educated. And the working class are much larger than the college educated, right? We're talking about two-thirds of the population. Who drives the Democratic Party these days? Who defines its cultural and political outlook? I would say it's really the college educated, not the working class. And the college educated, moreover, who are white and who are liberal, um, which is a little weird considering the fact this is historically the party of the working class. And in fact, a big chunk of the Democratic Party's base to this day uh, is still white working class. And importantly, as this is what we, one thing you're getting at, non-white working class. The overwhelming majority of the non-white population that supports the Democratic Party at high rates are working class. One of my favorite statistics is if you look at the 2012 to 2020 period, you know, between Obama's victory and, and Biden's victory in the presidential race, you saw a 16-point increase 
in uh, the Democrats' margin among white college-educated voters. At the same time, as you saw an 18-point decrease in their margin among non-white working-class voters. What's the Democrats' problem with Hispanic voters? It, it really is a version of a lot of the things we were talking about, that Hispanics you know, had a presumptive level of support for the Democrats because they felt Democrats were more on their side, were going to do more things for their community. They were you know, friendly to immigrants. You know, Republicans were questionable in a lot of this stuff. But if you get to the point where your party, i.e. the Democrats, is perceived as becoming culturally much more liberal, even radical on a lot of issues, you know, you can't try to convince Hispanics that they all live in a racist dystopian hellhole uh, where the only thing keeping them back is is racism and that, you know, that's really what America is all about. I mean, these are upwardly mobile working class people who are committed to their communities and their families. They're patriotic. And, you know, once you start calling that stuff into question or seeming to call it into question and you don't necessarily even produce economic outcomes that are so great for them. I mean, let's not forget the Trump economy was generally viewed more positively prior to COVID than the Biden economy has been yet. Um, and the Democrats were associated with somewhat draconian levels of shutdown, which hurt a lot of Hispanic working class people, uh, you start eroding that presumption, I'm going to vote for the Democrats because they're my party, my father voted for them, or everybody else around me does. And you have people who are particularly people who are conservative, ideologically, but also moderate, starting to think, well, the Democrats may not be my party. And what about college-educated voters, people with at least a four-year degree? People are surrounded by other people who are just like them. They all have college educations. They all have professional, quasi-professional jobs. But they don't realize that this is not America. Most people, you know, have blue-collar jobs, low-level white-collar jobs. They don't have a college education. They don't have a four-year degree. Maybe they've been to some college. Maybe they have an AA degree. But, you know, they have a very different kind of life and a very different outlook on life than the people you hang around with who, you know, uh, sort of have all the right attitudes about all the right things. So I do think this is a fundamental disconnect between political elites today and uh, and the country. And I think it's become worse over time. And some of this comes down not just to economics, but some really core values. You mentioned the the three pillars that you uh, advocate the Democratic Party should should embrace includes patriotism. And you call your Substack, which is really a fantastic newsletter, the liberal patriot. I bet you a lot of our liberal friends would be embarrassed by that term. I know a lot of my friends, if you if you said, are you a patriot? They'd the first word out of their mouth would might would probably be first phrase would probably be, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's very that's that's a very real uh, you know phenomenon in Democratic Party circles. That there's a whole variety of things that Democrats no longer feel comfortable talking about. What's your attitude toward crime? You know, do you believe in public safety and law and order or not? Uh, do you think criminal, violent criminals, should be gotten off the streets? Well. You know, we got to keep in mind all the disparities here, and we need criminal justice reform. You know, are, are you for border security? Well, you know, I mean, people they want to come here, and we have to be humane and asylum system and so on. Um, whereas, I mean, it's funny if you look; it's not wasn't that long ago when the, the the Obama administration they had much less difficulty talking about some of this stuff. 
uh, about border security, about crime, about patriotism. Uh, but the Democratic Party has really changed since then. And of course, you know, as, as you are well aware, because the Manhattan Institute does, and City Journal does this great work on this, uh, you know, the sort of the rise of these boutique ideologies, which have now spread way beyond the campus on issues of race and gender is really quite remarkable. And that any disparity at any time between any racial groups is evidence of, of racism and should simply be thought about in that way. And that therefore maybe we should, uh, you know, focus more on equal outcomes and equal opportunity. Uh, this all this is anathema to most Americans and especially most working class Americans who still believe in, you know, you should be judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin, and that everybody should work hard for what they obtain and everybody should be held to high standards and everybody should have equal opportunities. Discrimination is bad, but, you know, handing out outcomes on the basis of your skin color or other descriptive characteristics is just wrong. So, you know, Democrats are definitely screwed the pooch and all this stuff, in my opinion. I'm a little skeptical about one thing, and that is that it's only the Democrats that have screwed the pooch with regard to the culture wars. They cut both ways, don't they? I mean, the Democrats arguably did better than expected last year by seizing on abortion rights as a key issue. And six-week abortion bans that are backed by Republicans are pretty extreme on the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why working class people aren't interested in a ban on abortion by and large. They're probably they're not too happy with a six week limit. I mean, as all the data for years has been showing what people would be willing to accept is basically abortion available without really any conditions in the first trimester. And then with some uh, exceptions thereafter. I mean, if you're a Republican, you would want to have a debate between Democrats who think abortion should be available for any time and any reason through the entire pregnancy as opposed to a reasonable moderate position that would essentially emulate that in European countries. And, uh, but they can't have that debate because Republicans are so, there's such a big segment of the party which is committed to the idea that all abortions should be banned. So that's, uh, that's a very good political terrain for the Democrats and they're taking advantage of it. And let's face it, the Republicans have all kinds of wacky elements in their party and candidates who come out of that kind of that kind of milieu and are egged on by Trump, who are way too far culturally to the right and just kind of nutty in general. So neither party, I think at this point, can present a face to the public that is plausibly moderate and reasonably you know, sort of replicates the way normal people think about the world. And this is a real problem. Do you think there's a prospect for the Democratic Party to reform and, and find its way back to the sort of more more moderate, more appealing, worker-oriented party that you'd like to see them be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a possibility, obviously, but I, I'm not optimistic in the very short term. As we move into 2024, I think everything's focused on reelecting, you know, Joe Biden and you know, hopefully taking back the House and somehow managing to hold the Senate. And we're already in, you know, batting down the hatches campaign mode. And I think if 2022 had turned out a bit different, right? In other words, if Democrats hadn't done relatively well in the election, because they did not get their clock cleaned, I think it really militates against reform in the short term. Because I just think people concluded that, yeah, maybe we are basically fine. And the important thing at this point is to have Biden beat Trump. And it's not, it's not a situation that's congenial 
for thinking in a broader sense about what problems does our party have and don't we want to not only beat Trump, but beat him really badly and you know, sort of have the broadest possible front against him and his politics, which means maybe we should make some compromises about some things. I don't think that's the way the center gravity of the Democrats are thinking at this point, though I wish it was. Politics is very hard to predict. Coalitions are fluid over the medium term, and we just don't know what the, uh, the rest of the 2020s are going to hold. So uh, in the mortal words of Jesse Jackson, keep hope alive. Rui Teixeira on How Do We Fix It? Next, a recommendation, then our conversation. Richard, I think you're up for the recommendation this week. It's a book this time, Jim, and a rather weighty one. It took me a, about a month to get through it. It's called The Earth Shall Weep, A History of Native America by James Wilson. It was written about 20 years ago. And the book really shook me up as it walked through how Indian tribes have been in a struggle for survival over the past 500 years. There's a good deal of treachery and tragedy documented in this book, but Wilson is much more of a researcher than some kind of polemicist. I came away thinking that if America is going to have a debate on reparations or hold a truth commission, such as what they did in South Africa, it would need to include not only descendants of slaves, but also Native Americans. Indian tribes deserve a more prominent place in our current debates about race and ethnicity than is currently the case. Yeah, it's a story that I think every American needs to understand. And there's an aspect of it that I find particularly discouraging. You usually think the moral arc of the universe uh, bends towards justice. But when it comes to the relationships between the colonists of European descent and the Native American peoples they interacted with, things got worse over time rather than better in many ways. And you know, by the late 19th century, some of the, uh, the worst massacres and dislocations of, of Native peoples were still taking place, even at a time when you know, that we'd made this, this historic pivot to, to abolish slavery. So it's a discouraging story. There are, mom there are bits of hope in it today. And one, I'm working on a project right now about the environmental justice movement. And in that area, uh, Native peoples are very much front and center in thinking about the relationships between different groups and the government and what might be done to kind of even the score of history. The Earth Shall Weep, James Wilson. And next, our chat about today's interview. You suggested Rui Teixeira, Jim, and even though you're on the right side of, of the political aisle, I think that what he is writing about is essential reading, or at least it should be for Democrats. And what Rui Teixeira is saying, and, and quite convincingly, is that if more Democrats followed his advice, they'd win bigger victories at elections. Yeah, you know, and when Democrats do win, it's usually by f either following that device, advice or pretending to. A lot of these ideas about about sexuality, about things like critical race theory, you mentioned reparations before, you know, that's an idea that's very common in a lot of far left circles, but the majority of Americans 
are uh, including Democrats are are not in favor of of that kind of thing. You often hear people saying, "Oh, Republicans are gone crazy. They're all upset about, you know, what's going on in schools and 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 this topic and that topic and a lot of Republicans have gone crazy." But you also have to acknowledge that the school books, for example, that people are are worried about in schools today are completely different <laughs> from the things that people conservatives might have been concerned about in the 90s, you know. Some of them are very explicitly sexual. You can make an argument for them, but it's not like the Republicans just all of a sudden uh, decided to turn against all kinds of longstanding policies. The policies changed. The policies that a lot of people in the Democratic Party are arguing for got a lot more far out. And people are noticing. And when they notice, even Democrats back away. Yes, but culture wars cut both ways. I mean, laws and Republican bills in Arkansas and some other states banning gender treatment for young people go too far. And six-week abortion bans are out of the mainstream. Now, those forms of overreach are well-known and get quite a bit of coverage in the media. But the criticism of Democrats from inside the movement, from someone who actually wants Democrats to win future elections and win big, are a lot less well-known. And that's why we invited Ray Teixeira to be on the podcast. Yeah. And I think uh, Democrats have been you know, really advised to listen and to remember how successful Democrats were <laughs> In the 60s, in terms of pushing through a lot of uh, social programs that are more of the sort that Rui's in favor of. You know, he's he's in favor of big government programs to help the poor and the elderly and things like that. You know, he's in favor of of a nationalized medical system and, and other programs like that. And as you say, Republicans who've gone, you know, either kind of walked the plank with Trump or gone uh, too far in a, in a far right direction on abortion, they're paying the price. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. This show is produced by Miranda Schaefer. And How Do We Fix It? is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for nonprofits in the bridging space, uh, the community that seeks to bridge divides between the hard left and the hard right. <laughs> or maybe the sensible left and the sensible right. That's where there's some hope. I'm not sure I, the either I, extreme I is, right. is yeah. let's hope yeah. they're reachable someday, but that's not really our, our that's that's not really our 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 target. We're just trying to find sensible people who are open minded. Well said. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.